The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Laura Prendergast. And today we are delighted to be joined by Amir Katecha. Amir is a chef and food writer and a regular contributor to The Spectator. He's also first secretary at the UK Foreign Office. And his first book, the Platinum Jubilee cookbook, Recipes and Stories from Her Majesty's Representatives Around the World, will be published on the 28th of April. Amir, welcome to Table Talk. Thanks very much for having me. And as listeners know, we always start with the same question, which is, what are your earliest memories of food? Well, I don't know if it's my very first memory, but I do have a very vivid memory of sitting in um, the family kitchen on the tabletop, uh, licking the inside of a, a cake batter bowl when my mother was baking. So it was one of those brown mason cash bowls that, that probably everyone knows. And yeah, I just have a very vivid, vivid memory of that. It was this green linoleum floored kitchen. The floor was always sticky, I think, sort of years and years of pasta sauces and all that sort of thing probably splattered on the floor. But um, yeah, very vivid memory of that. And it's um, probably, you know, baking with one's mum is probably a bit of a sort of cliche, but uh, I'm not sure I helped very much. But I did, <laughs> I, did, uh, I did lick the inside of a lot of raw batter. I remember that. Delicious. And was it your mother who mainly did most of the cooking? Yeah, my my mum worked growing up very hard. So she did do a lot of the cooking, but it was always a bit of a team effort. My dad helped chop the vegetables and uh, my job was, was cutting the salad. I was keen to show off my newfound knife skills, I remember, as a as a kid. So I sort of took responsibility for cutting the salad. And my grandmother helped as well. So she lived with us half of the week. And so she shared the um, the burden when it came to cooking. And what sorts of meals would your mum be cooking? So it was quite a bit of Indian food, because that's where my ancestry is from. My parents were actually both born in Africa but and grew up in Africa. But uh, the family ancestry is India. So it was quite a bit of Indian food, but not solely Indian food and um, I think one of the things I liked most was uh, Thursdays because that was I still remember sort of treat day and my grandmother used to to try her hand at making western food Uh, so it was always western food but with a bit of an Indian twist so I remember she um, she used to put cumin in the pasta and do a sort of a little Indian twist on, on, on Western dishes. But I always quite enjoyed that. And you mentioned licking cake batter. Was baking a, a staple part of your childhood? My mother is a very, very good baker. So she makes an excellent carrot cake, which every Christmas and, and, and often throughout the year is, is a fixture. Uh, she also makes a very nice cheesecake and, and lots of things, actually. Uh, Indian sort of sweet treats as well so yeah baking was was always quite big my mum also loves a black forest gatto so sometimes she made it but also sometimes she she bought it but uh, I still have this vivid memory of 
her sort of parading round this Black Forest Gatto on a platter whenever people used to to come round. And I always, I sort of wrote about it recently, and I, I uh, it sort of almost looked like the Imperial State Crown, you know, on this <laughs> on this bit, on this very elaborate uh, cake platter. Well, funny enough, you have to tell her to look out for Liv's next food column, which is about Black Forest Gatto. Oh, Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. The BFG was a fixture of my childhood, and will recreate it when when your column comes out, Liv. And Emil, what about school food? Do you have happy memories? I do. So I was um, quite lucky to be at a school which had proper school dinners provided. And I have very fond memories. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a bit hopelessly sentimental and nostalgic. So I, I'm one of these people that does reminisce about school food and its very fond memories. I mean, I still can't quite believe that it was acceptable to have sponge cake and custard every single day for for pudding I mean now that just seems totally (laughs) disproportionate and outrageously unhealthy but I did and I even waged a campaign I mean it sounds pathetic in hindsight but I, I had a little campaign to allow with the school to allow us to have seconds because I I remember always being very hungry even after finishing my lunch and so I took this campaign to the powers that be uh, at the school and demanded that you know we be allowed to go up, allowed to go up for seconds. It was a bit pathetic in hindsight, but uh, they did grant that. So I often had two lunches, but only <laughs> only after everyone else had finished. And I like I like to think that also helped reduce food waste. So it, it, that's my justification for it. Oh yeah, there's there's real virtue in the seconds. <laughs> and what about university? What what was food like at that stage? So at university, I had food at my college in the first and the third year, which was perfectly nice, sort of an extension of school dinners, I guess. But in my second year, I lived out, and so I did more cooking. And it was, you know, fairly basic, because at uni, you know, we don't have time to to make three-course meals. But I do remember having fun cooking with college flatmates and I have one me- very um, strong memory of almost every week making masala beans on toast which is a sort of Indian twist on typical beans on toast so it's sort of jazzed up with lots of spices and fresh coriander and onion and myself and my flatmate uh, made that almost every week so that was a fond memory. And how did you go from sort of an academic university career and working in the foreign office to writing about food and cookery specifically? So the foreign office is still my day job and um, I essentially have always tried to maintain this interest in food and cooking and food writing on the site. So, uh, I mean, when I left university, I spent a couple of years in the city at an investment fund And then I left there and did a very brief stint as a professional chef. So I I worked in a two Michelin starred restaurant as a as a stagiaire. And it was a very short stint, but that gave me a taste of being a professional chef. So I enjoyed it, but I I did decide, having done that short stint, that actually I wanted to keep up this interest in food, but not doing the grueling hours and very difficult career that being a professional chef involves. I remember it being uh, slightly traumatising. So 
I decided that I would take up the offer I had uh, of joining Her Majesty's Diplomatic Service and keep up the interest in food uh, on the side. And I've done that through having this pop-up uh, restaurant in Pimlico, uh, doing food writing for The Spectator and, and other publications, uh, and now this book. And in your work as a diplomat, how, how important is food as a diplomatic tool? So this is the thing that inspired the whole book, really. And it's something that has consistently impressed me since joining the office, that food has this incredibly important uh, role um, in the sort of diplomatic art and this incredibly important place in the diplomatic world. I mean, of course, there's so many cliches and stereotypes around this, around, you know, champagne and frere rochers at the ambassadorial cocktail parties and I mean they they bear little resemblance to the truth you know I can't remember ever having been served a Frere Rocher in my career to date but you know, notwithstanding you know food has this really important um, part and you know everyone knows that by sharing food with someone else it's a foundation to build rapport and to get to know the other person and to get the other person to like you if you know to put it bluntly and and the same is true in the world of diplomacy and at the high tables of of power and you know that's that's something that always interested me and it it what it's what led me to to write the book so tell us about the book what's the what's the premise so the platinum jubilee cookbook so it comes out as you say, in April, and it's it's really um, part collection of recipes from British embassies around the world, uh, and part exploration of the role of food in diplomacy. So there's 70 recipes, and uh, it won't have escaped you, 70 recipes is a deliberate attempt uh, to mirror the 70 years that the, the Queen has, has spent on the throne. So 70 recipes and then narrative, which explores this idea of food um, and the role it plays as a diplomatic tool. And, and then throughout as well, I profile lots of great British food products. So there's household names like golden Tatenlal, golden syrup or Cadbury's chocolate, but also other brands that, that for example, are royal warrant holding brands and um, have a connection to the monarchy that way so it's a celebration of of food of britishness of the diplomatic world and of the role that food plays in that and gives the flavor of the recipes uh, within so there's a real mix and i think this is what's really nice so some are proudly british and you know the ones that that spring to mind uh, there are a, a recipe for a perfect victoria sponge or uh, scones, or um, you know, coconut cake fingers. But then there's also recipes which are authentically local. And uh, for example, there is um, a recipe for chimole, which is um, probably the national dish of Belize. Uh, or there is um, a recipe uh, for... Um, well, lots of the African recipes are, are, are very authentically um, local too. So, so it's a real mix. And, and actually, some of my favourites are the the ones which are a fusion of the two. So, 
that are British but have a local twist. So uh, the recipe contribution from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia is a rendang beef wellington. So a proudly British classic, but given a local twist. So it's a mixture of beef rendang and beef wellington. And, and actually that was served to their Royal Highnesses, the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall when they went to Malaysia a few years ago. So lots of the dishes have a royal link in the, in the sense that they were served to, to members of the royal family on their overseas visits. And as well as the Platinum Jubilee cookbook, you've also come up with the idea for the Platinum Pudding, yes. um, which is, has now been taken on by Fortnum's. Um, yes. Can you tell us a bit about that? So uh, the, the idea came to me in the shower. <laughs> and <laughs> All the best ideas come, come to me in the shower. And uh, it occurred to me that We have a much-loved classic in the Victoria Sponge, uh, and we needed something equivalent for our present wonderful Queen. So I thought, let's have a big national competition. We are a nation of bakers, after all, to invent a new pudding. And so uh, that was the idea. And, you know, there has been so many dishes throughout history that have been named after famous people, everything from pavlova to Garibaldi biscuits, and also lots of dishes named after members of the British royal family. Uh, But we don't have uh, something, except for coronation chicken, we don't have uh, something for our present queen. So so that was the idea. And and yeah, I took the idea to the palace and uh, to government colleagues and, and to Fortnum's, and it's grown from there into the platinum pudding competition. Do you know how many entries it's had so far? I can't. I can't give you an exact figure, but <laughs> but we've been bowled over with the amount of interest, and you know thousands upon thousands of entries. Uh, and luckily, the job of filtering them has fallen to to the excellent uh, team uh, of Fortnum's chefs, as opposed to to, to myself. <laughs> but yeah, it's been it's been a huge, uh, huge response. And I think that shows how much joy people get from baking, you know, particularly after the torrid couple of years we've had with COVID. I think um, people have sort of sought real pleasure in, in baking. And, and I think also I loved the idea of, you know, Grandchildren and grandparents, for example, have been separated for so long during the pandemic. I loved the idea that they would get together in the kitchen and you know bake together and produce something wonderful. And I think what's been lovely is to see the great variety in uh, people entering. You know, every everyone from from young children to people in their eighties, you know, cooking in their care homes, for example. So it's been lovely. And at home, what do you enjoy baking or cooking? So at home, I I cook almost everything, but I particularly like making simple curries. I am amazed how easy it is to make a curry, but how difficult people think it is. You know, it's almost one of those things that people are quite intimidated to make, but it's so easy and you just need three or four uh, spices and some onions you know or not even some onions and you know you've got the foundation for a curry so I, I cook lots of curries um, but you know all sorts really things that are quite quick and easy you know egg fried rice or 
simple stir fries. Um, I'm a big fan of of uh, Asian food, so I cook that as well. But and and British classics. When I, I think on on the weekend when I have a bit more time, that's when uh, I will make a pie or something something like that, where I can turn on the radio and pour a glass of wine and and sort of relax into it. Namir, what what is your comfort food? My comfort food is probably an Indian dish. It's called kitchri. It's actually the foundation or the the, the, the genesis behind kedgeri, which you'll you'll know. But the original Indian dish doesn't have smoked haddock and doesn't have boiled eggs. It's almost just like a porridge-like rice dish, almost like an Indian risotto. And it's very, very comforting. And I have I have strong memories of my grandmother making it and uh, topping it with a thick slab of anchor butter, uh, which melted in a pool on top. So that has to be my, my ultimate comfort food. And what about eating out? Which restaurants or, or bars do you like to frequent? So I live locally in Westminster uh, in a tiny little flat, but, but I'm lucky to be so central. And there is some real hidden gems I think in Westminster my favorite is probably I, I'm slightly reluctant to give the name because I don't <laughs> want to, to let the secret out but it's essentially a a, a, a cabbie's restaurant uh, which does amazing Italian food I'm gonna give the name it's called it's called Sapori's and it's I mean the first time I went there I couldn't understand why everyone had this gold uh, medallion around their necks and everyone was drinking tea or cappuccino with their pasta as opposed to a glass of red wine. And then, of course, I realised that they were all black cab drivers and so they couldn't drink on the job. And the medallion was there, was the evidence of, of them having passed that notorious test or whatever it was to become a black cab driver. So it's an amazing place and incredibly cheap and very filling portions because it's meant to fuel fuel the cabbies as they um as they sort of take a pit stop in the middle of the night. And to finish we normally ask what would your desert island meal be? So I knew you were going to ask this. So I've actually <laughs> listened to previous episodes. <laughs> exactly. And I so I've I've thought about this very hard. <laughs> So my the starter would be my mum's samosas. Uh, they are filled with bird's eye peas, and the tortilla wrapping is actually um, comes from the United States because in our, in our family we take samosas incredibly seriously. So, and my mother is convinced that the very best tortilla wraps uh, for the for the samosas casing come from the U.S. So every time my auntie comes over here she's instructed to pack about a dozen uh, packets of tortilla wraps in her suitcase so that that would be the starter and then the main is probably fish and chips uh, eaten out of the paper with huge amounts of salt and vinegar it's hard to beat and uh, for dessert for pudding a traditional British uh, sponge pudding with custard maybe sticky toffee pudding or maybe even the platinum pudding uh, when it is finally <laughs> when, it's when it's finally revealed. But yeah, I, I have a I have a soft spot for uh, for cake and custard. That's my kind of menu. Mm, that sounds delicious, Amir. Thank you very much for joining Table Talk, and Amir's book will be out on the twenty eighth of April. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Table Talk. If you enjoyed it, please do leave us a rating and review. For more recipes and recommendations, sign up to The Spectator's free monthly food and drink email, The Takeaway, written by me, Olivia Potts. Sign up at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Olivia Potts. <laughs>